0: Let me ask you to open up your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, and I want us to begin reading uh, one final time beginning in verse 5, Uh, and we're going to begin... Uh, There and go through verse 13. So Romans chapter 10, uh, beginning verse 5, reading through verse 13. Our focus this morning will be on the end of that passage, uh, verses 11, 12, and 13. Let's start in verse 5. This is the word of Almighty God. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have already seen the connection between verses 9 and 10 and verse 11. The connection is between confessing Jesus in verses 9 and 10 and shame in verse 11. So put yourself into the shoes of these Christians in Rome. And that's getting easier and easier for us. There was a time here in the South when not being a Christian was something that might make you feel ashamed. But more and more, being a follower of Christ. In our culture, and holding to Christian principles and holding to Christian beliefs, you may find that you are tempted to be ashamed, tempted to be embarrassed. Uh, you may be the butt of jokes. Uh, you may be labeled as regressive, an obstacle to progress, a hate mongerer, a bigot, a fool, a bad citizen. In ancient Rome, though the city was a melting pot in many ways of many different peoples from many different religions, what united these different peoples together was their pluralism, their their common love for worshipping pagan gods through drink and through sex and through immoral practices. For Christians in ancient Rome and for us today, Confessing Christ would often unite different peoples together against them. Different peoples with different political views and different religious views all agreed on this. The Christians need to go. But Jesus did not call us to cower in fear, Jesus called us to be confident that He is the risen Lord able to fulfill every promise that he has made. And therefore, we are not to be afraid of this world, and we are not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Christians are the salt of the earth, a city set on a hill. We, we're not to put our light under a basket, but on a stand. We are to believe on Christ, and we are to confess Christ as Lord to the watching world. Now, as Paul is discussing this, the importance of believing on Christ and confessing Christ, the Holy Spirit brings to his mind a verse of Scripture. Isaiah 28, verse 13. And one reason that this particular verse of Scripture comes to Paul's mind is, is that he just quoted it earlier, back in Romans 9, verse 33. So here in verse 11 of chapter 10, he quotes the verse again, but this time he only quotes the second half of the verse. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And from this Old Testament quotation, Paul seems to be drawing two main ideas. First, he sees in this verse from Isaiah that we as Christians should be willing to confess Christ publicly because we will not be put to shame. Not in the ultimate sense, Whatever the world may do to us, whether the world mocks us, calls us fools, even if the world kills us, on the last day, we as followers of Christ will be vindicated. Because on the last day, every knee is going to bow. And on the last day, every tongue is going to confess what we are already confessing, that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. We have no reason to be ashamed now, And the truth that we confess will be acknowledged by all at the end of all things. And so with this big picture in view, Paul is giving us encouragement. He's giving us motivation to be bold in our witness for Christ. But then secondly, and this is where Paul is now going in our passage, Paul draws from this verse, from Isaiah, the idea that salvation is open to everyone. Because what does Isaiah 28, verse 13 say? Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Everyone. The, the door to heaven is open wide. Mount Hermon, what we have, beginning in verse 11, is a three-verse sandwich. Okay? A three-verse sandwich. In verse 11, Paul... I am going to take this mic off because it keeps making this weird sound, and I'm going to use this one. In verse 11, Paul quotes a verse of Scripture that shows that salvation is open to whoever believes. Then in verse 12, the meat of the sandwich... Paul explains why this verse means what he says it means. And then in verse 13, to prove the point all the more, Paul quotes a second verse of scripture, this time from the prophet Joel. So we have an Old Testament excuse me, an Old Testament quotation, an explanation, and then another Old Testament quotation to help prove the point. And the whole point of this three-verse sandwich is this. The gospel is for all people. The gospel is for all people. So let me make just a few observations from verses 11 through 13. So number one, note that in verse 11, we see again that the way of salvation is through faith. The way of salvation is through faith. So many of us learned John three sixteen as little children... For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The way of salvation is the way of believing, the way of faith. It is the way of accepting the doctrines of God's holiness and man's sinfulness and Christ's death and resurrection for our sakes But it's not only the way of accepting these truths, it's calling out on Christ. It is an act of the will in which you entrust yourself to Christ. Who will have the victory on the last day? Who will experience the glories of being forgiven and receiving the gracious gift of heaven itself? Who will not be ashamed on the last day? Verse 11 is clear. It's everyone who believes. There are many today who have no shame. But they will be ashamed on the day of judgment. But we as Christians through faith in Christ can live today without shame. And can know that on the last day through Christ we will not be ashamed. Everyone who believes. Let me just ask you. Do you believe this morning? Are you a believer in the gospel? Number two. Note from verses 11 and 12 that there is no distinction among people when it comes to the way of salvation. There is no distinction among people or even among peoples, different groups of people, when it comes to the way of salvation. In other words, there there is not... There's not multiple ways to heaven. There's not one way for me and one way for you. It's not as if the Gentiles get to heaven over here on this path and the Jews get to heaven over here on a different path. The many different ethnic groups of the ancient world all had their national gods and their tribal gods, and even their particular gods for their families. And these people trusted in their particular gods to bless them, and each went to his own God. And Paul was making clear here that that way of thinking is wrong. There is only one way of salvation. There is only one door to heaven, and it is the door of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ excuse me <clears throat> i remember a few years ago that a very popular pastor in our country was interviewed on larry king live and on national television a portion of their conversation went something like this larry king said because we've had ministers on our program who said you either believe in christ or you don't if you believe in christ you are going to heaven And if you don't, no matter what you do in your life, you ain't. Uh, And this pastor responded, Yeah, I don't know. There's probably a balance between... I believe you have to know Christ, but I think that if you know Christ, if you are a believer in God, then you're going to do some good works. I think it's a cop-out to say I'm a Christian, but I don't ever do anything. And so King pressed the question. He said, What if you are Jewish? What if you are a Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? And the pastor said, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. King said, if you believe, you have to believe in Christ. They're wrong, aren't they? Meaning Jews and Muslims and others. The pastor said, well, I don't know. I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know about all their religion, but I know they love God. I I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. Friends, how can any pastor who preaches the word of God not know? Is the Bible not clear Didn't Jesus teach that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him? Didn't the apostles teach in the most unmistakable terms in Acts 4 that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved? And here in our passage, in the very meat of this sandwich, Paul tells us there is no distinction. The way of salvation is the same for everyone. You either come to know Christ, to trust Him, to believe on Him, and you receive the grace of God through Him, or you remain in your sin, under judgment, and go to eternal punishment in hell. There are no other options. There is no other way. Third, note the reason that there is no distinction. Namely, the same Lord is Lord of all. Do you see that in the verse? The same Lord is the Lord of all. In other words, the reason there is only one way of salvation is that there is only one Lord who holds the fate of all of us in his hand. There is one Lord who has been given the keys to death and Hades. God has given all authority to Jesus Christ. And this includes the authority to save and the authority to condemn. So if you want to deal with the future destiny of your soul... There is only one person that you need to deal with, and that's Jesus Christ. Muhammad doesn't have the keys. Joseph Smith doesn't have the keys. Your local priest doesn't have the keys. Choose any other person. You can pray to them. You can talk to them all day long till you are blue in the face. You can perform all kinds of rituals and give yourself to all kinds of religious practices. It doesn't matter. God has given the keys of death and Hades to one man and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has authority to pardon your soul and bring you to heaven. There is only one king of the universe. And he is the one with whom we must all reckon. Now that makes this fourth observation all the more wonderful. Note fourthly that this Lord makes no distinction in his willingness to be generous to those who call on him. This Lord makes no distinction in his willingness to be generous To those who call on Him. What does verse 12 say? For the same Lord is Lord of all. Bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. I love that word riches. Our Lord is rich in mercy. And He is rich in grace. You can come to Him with all of your sinfulness. You can come to Him with all of your past wrongs, all of your present filthiness, and His grace is sufficient to forgive every single sin, past, present, and future. By His blood, you can be declared righteous in the sight of God, and by His Word and Spirit, you can be made truly righteous on the last day. There is no partiality in Christ. He does not extend the offer of salvation to only some kinds of people. As Jesus presents the gospel, he does not show preference to people who speak one language over another language. He does not give the gospel to people of one skin color over people of another skin color. Jesus says to every human being in the world, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Christ delights to show mercy. Christ loves forgiving sins. And he went to the cross and he died. And he suffered the torments. For all kinds of people. And therefore the call goes out. To everyone. Come to Christ and be saved. Justin, you don't know how messed up I am. You don't understand the things that I've done. You don't understand, Justin, I'm not like the other people in this room. I've done some really bad things. Well, dear friend, however full of sin you are, I promise you Christ is fuller of grace. However deep your sin runs, His mercy is deeper still. However high your sins may pile up, His love rises far, far higher. I can assure you, you have not out-sinned the grace of Jesus Christ. There is hope for you if you will only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, understanding that the main point of these three verses is that salvation is open to everyone, there are two further observations I want to make. These are not the main point of the passage, but they are two very important lessons found in these three verses. Here they are. Number one, note Paul's method of teaching these Roman Christians. Note his method of teaching these Roman Christians. His method is to point them to Scripture. The assumption that is undergirding all three of these verses is that if something is said in Scripture, it is God's Word, and it is to be believed. That's why he is quoting Scripture to prove his point. Paul knows that he and his fellow Christians are united on this The Scriptures are God-breathed, infallible, our source for truth. We might err in our understanding of Scripture, in our interpretation of Scripture, but the Scriptures themselves do not err. And since God is perfect in all He does, if His goal in giving us Scripture is for us to know the truth... We have reason to believe that He has given us the Scripture in a way that we really can understand it. When we come to the Bible and we read that everyone who believes will not be put to shame, we don't need to treat that verse as a puzzle to be solved or as something mystic or as something mysterious. We can take it at face value. God is communicating to us in a way that we can understand and what the verse clearly says is plain as day so easy a little child can understand it salvation is for all Mount Hermon this is what is at bottom the very thing that separates us from others in our culture so many people in our society go around making assertions of what is good and what is evil and what is right and what is wrong and now, I always want to ask, says who? By what authority are you making these declarations? If you're giving me your opinion, why is your opinion more valuable than, than my opinion? You see, the difference between us and others in our culture is that our worldview is not based on our opinion. When we make declarations of what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, we can do so with authority. And this is something that others in our culture cannot do. So just some days ago, there was an editorial in the New York Times about this. And I want you just to listen to a little snippet from this article. Here's what it says. In American politics... Few forces are more powerful than a voter's vague intuition. I support Donald Trump because I feel like he is a doer, a senior at the University of South Carolina told Cosmopolitan. Personally, I feel like Bernie Sanders is too idealistic, a Yale student explained to a reporter in Florida. At a Ted Cruz rally in Wisconsin in April, a Cruz fan declared... I feel like I can trust that he will keep his promises. These people don't think, believe, or reckon. They feel like. Listen for this phrase and you'll hear it everywhere, inside and outside politics. Natasha Bangerkar, a senior at Williams College, hears, I feel like, in the classroom on a daily basis. She said, when you use the phrase, I feel like, It gives you an out. You're not so much stating a fact as much as giving an opinion, she told me. It's an effort to make our ideas more palatable to the other person. Uh, This linguistic hedging is particularly common at universities, where calls for trigger warnings and safe spaces may have eroded students' inclination to assert or to argue. It is safer to merely feel. Bradley Campbell, a sociologist at California State University, Los Angeles, was an author of an article about the shift on many campuses from a culture of dignity, which celebrates free speech, to a culture of victimhood, marked by the assumption that people are so fragile they cannot hear something offensive, he told me. Mount Hermon, I want us to be very clear. You and I don't have to say to the world well, I feel that homosexuality is wrong. No. Homosexuality is wrong. We don't have to say to people, well, it kind of seems to me that maybe forgiving those who hurt you is a good thing. No. With biblical authority and therefore divine authority, we can say forgiving those who hurt you is good and right. Right. When we stand on the Bible and proclaim the message of the Bible, we are proclaiming truth. We don't have to follow our culture in this subjective, opinionated, well, I feel like this kind of language. We can be different. We can be salt. We can be light in this very thing. When we say something, we say it with authority. And the authority is not my opinion. The authority is not your preference. It's the authority of God himself. And therefore, when Paul is trying to make a point to this Roman church about the nature of the gospel and the the idea of gospel mission, what does he do to show authority? He quotes scripture. Because he knows this about Christians. When they hear scripture, they know they're obligated to believe and to obey what they hear. Test yourself. What is the Bible to you? Is it the very word of God for you? Is it the supreme authority in directing your life and shaping your worldview? And do you have such confidence in it that you can stand before others and you can make declarations without having to say, I feel like. You can just say, it is. Thus saith the Lord. The second observation that I want to point out from this passage is also an important one. It's actually a very important one. In verse 13, the bottom of our sandwich, Paul quotes Joel 2 32. And in doing so, he takes a verse that is clearly in the book of Joel speaking about Jehovah, Yahweh. I am who I am. And Paul says that this verse is about Jesus. In Joel, the word Lord is the name of God himself. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And here in Romans 10, Paul quotes that very same verse and applies it to Jesus Christ. We know that Paul is using this word Lord to refer to Jesus because he's just been talking about if you confess that Jesus is Lord. In other words... Jesus is Yahweh. When Joel says, everyone who calls on the name of Jehovah will be saved, what he's saying is, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Jehovah and Jesus are one. And so when Mormons show up at your door and you have an opportunity to talk with them, this is one of the passages I recommend that you go to first. Because even in their warped translation of scripture, they still have this verse. And you can show them in their own Bible that God in Joel 2.32 is Jesus in Romans 10.13. Alright, having made those two observations, I want to close this morning by drawing out two implications... our main point so you remember the main point the main point of the sandwich is that salvation is open to everyone here are two important implications that we're going to see Paul work out for us in the rest of this letter first there is an implication here for church unity for church unity you see through Christ Jew and Gentile have been made one Now just think about that. Think about the culture at that time and how these two groups of people felt about each other. Most Jews were brought up despising Gentiles. The Jews were the true people of God, living according to His rules. The Jews took great pains to be clean, able to come to God's temple and to worship. The Gentiles were unclean people, eating unclean animals, worshiping false gods, participating in drunkenness and all sorts of sexual immorality. And over the centuries, more and more Pharisaic rules were formulated to keep the Jews clean from the taint of Gentile influence. John MacArthur says this, a strict Jew would not allow himself to be a guest in a Gentile house. Neither would he invite a Gentile to be a guest in his own home. A scribal law said that the dwelling places of Gentiles were unclean. The dirt from a Gentile country was also considered unclean. If anyone happened to track some Gentile dirt into Israel, the dirt remained defiled. It never mingled with Israel's soil. It just continually defiled the dirt of Israel. Consequently, whenever travelers left a Gentile country, they would always shake off the dust of their feet so that they wouldn't bring Gentile pollution into Israel. MacArthur goes on to say that milk that was drawn from a cow by Gentile hands was not allowed to be consumed by Jews bread and oil prepared by a Gentile could be sold to a stranger but never used by a Jew no Jew would ever eat with a Gentile and if a Gentile was ever invited to a Jewish house he could not be left in the room lest he defile all the food in the room if cooking utensils were bought from a Gentile They had to be purified first by fire and then by water. So, with those kinds of rules and those kinds of attitudes towards Gentiles, you can imagine that the Gentiles in return weren't so fond of the Jews. Uh, Jews were despised by Gentiles because they wouldn't worship the gods of the Roman Empire. Jews were often seen as the thorn in the flesh of the Roman Empire, the one people group that would not fall in line with imperial practice and religious policy. The Jews seemed to be constantly revolting. Some Gentiles were fascinated by the Jews' strict practice of circumcision and Sabbath keeping, and a few Gentiles really admired the Jews for these things, but the vast majority of Gentiles mocked the Jews for these things. In fact, in the centuries before the time of Christ, it had become common practice for armies wanting to conquer an Israelite city to make sure they waited till the Sabbath day to attack. They knew that many Jews wouldn't fight on the Sabbath, and so the Jews would be easy prey. And in this way, the Jews became a laughingstock to the Gentile world. So, all of that is the baggage that came into a local church when Jews and Gentiles found themselves saved by the same Lord. They had always seen each other in in ways that were so different, right? You are different from me. You are unclean. You are different from me. You are one of those silly, weird Jews. They were different. And now all of a sudden, we're the same. We're alike in more ways than we are different. Back in Romans 3, 23, Paul taught that Jews and Gentiles are one in their sin. There is no distinction, he said. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now he says for Christians, not only are Jews and Gentiles one in their sinful condition, but Jews and Gentiles are one in their common salvation. They share a common faith in a common Lord, trusting in the same scriptures and dwelt by the same spirit. They've been given the same mission. They're headed towards the same heaven. These people with such animosity towards each other have now been made one body. Paul said in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 14, Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one So where are we going in Romans? Well, in Romans 12, in Romans 13, and Romans 14, Paul was going to help us work out what this unity should look like in the life of a local church. I remember when we were in Romania, churches there were dealing with very similar tensions between the Romanian people and the Roma people. The Roma people are often called by the derogatory name gypsies. The Roma people are known for being unclean, for being thieves. Their kids will come and beg on the streets, and if you're not looking, your wallet will disappear. The Romanian people despise the Roma. So what happens when Romanians come to Christ and Roma come to Christ? Do we start a Romanian church over here and a Roma church over here? Is that the Christian way? No. They are to come together as one. Just as they will be in heaven. And as they meet together in one church family. God begins to unite their hearts together. And we're hearing some wonderful things about what God is doing. In reconciling Romanians and Roma. In the midst of local church life in Romania. Well so here in the capital city of Rome. Jewish and Gentile believers are suddenly thrust together in one church family. And they're learning to together how to be one in faith and one in love and so what is Paul going to tell them he's going to tell them love one another outdo one another in showing honor do not pass judgment on one another do not cause your weaker brother to stumble as far as it depends on you live peaceably with all Mount Hermon, even in this room, we are different people from different backgrounds with different personalities and different interests. But we're one. And these are principles we need to be reminded of. Are we loving one another in this place? Are we outdoing one another in showing honor? Are we allowing ourselves to be separated from each other by our differences? Are we allowing our hearts to be united together by the fact that we serve a common Lord? So much of the rest of Romans is going to be about that. And then finally, the last implication, we're almost done. The last implication of the truth that the gospel is for everyone is obvious and essential. If the gospel is for everyone, then we need to get it to everyone. Where Paul was going to go first after this verse is straight to missions. The missionary implication. Millions grope in darkness waiting for thy word. Set my soul afire, Lord, set my soul afire. That's where he's going in the rest of Romans 10. Mount Herman, every single second two people in this world die and go to their eternal fate. Think about that. Think about the glories of heaven that are open to all who will hear the good news and believe. But as we will see next week, they have to hear because they cannot believe and they cannot call out on Christ for salvation if they do not hear. And over a billion people in the world today still have not heard the name of Jesus. And billions more who have heard the name of Jesus have still never been given an opportunity to hear a clear gospel message. Right here in Rocky Mount, we have thousands who have never heard a clear gospel presentation. Without hearing, they cannot go through the door that is wide open for them. They don't even know that the door is there. They are under judgment. Imagine, just dare to do this for a moment. Imagine the torments of hell. Consider the words that the Bible uses to describe the eternal condemnation of God. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, a lake of fire, a blazing furnace, everlasting destruction. Imagine if the floor gave way below us this moment and we descended into a place like that. There are billions who are going to breathe their last and go to that place and frankly we wouldn't wish it for a dog much less for a fellow human being created in the image of God and every single second two more people die more than 300 since I started making this point alone Mount Hermon what more can we be doing to get the gospel to more people What steps might we take to get more people to seriously listen to and consider the gospel message? What more do we need to give? And is there anyone in here that God might be calling to the great work of taking this gospel that is for everyone to people who've never heard it? God is calling us all to the great work of being witnesses. Friends, the gospel is open to all people, including people who look like you and people who don't. And so may we love our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we love souls. And may we be bold in pointing as many people as possible to faith in Jesus Christ as the way of salvation. Amen? Let's pray.